Well, good morning, church. How's everybody today? It's 9.45, rowdy crowd? That doesn't sound good. We'll give it a shot. Uh, my name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and it is truly an honor to be able to spend a little time with you this morning as we open up God's word and allow him to teach us something new that he might transform us into the people that he wants us to be. And so um, we began a new sermon series last week, if you were here, uh, a new sermon series to set the tone for 2024 called Holy Living. And this series really is all about learning what does it look like and what does it mean to live as a human while taking full advantage of the spirit of God that's been offered to us as we place our faith and our trust in him. And so uh, to really get us this morning where I feel like the Lord wants to take us, but to first understand that we are complex creatures. So look at the person next to you and be like, that's true. Maybe not the other side. Be careful who you pick. So yeah, complex creatures. I mean, you and me, we are bewildering kind of beings. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, mystery and complexity to all of us. It's just true about who we are. And I really figured this out around 2009, because in 2009, that's when I got married. Um, and so Jen and I, we decided to get married. And you know, after two individuals who have lived 23 years and 25 years to ourselves, all on our own, uh, learning how to function and, and work in that kind of way, doing our life and developing preferences and opinions and personalities and habits. I mean, what could go wrong, right? You take those kinds of people and then you put them together and you're like, good luck. And so we said, I do to one another. We got married and we began our life together. And so suddenly we're sharing this house together and we're learning about each other's like eating habits and each other's like cleaning habits or lack thereof. And our complex nature begins to reveal that living in relationship to one another is no easy task. Can I get an Amen. And really, all of us feel this in one way or the other. Uh, it takes work. It takes commitment. It takes flexibility. It takes faithfulness in order for two individuals to become one flesh. And we all feel this multifaceted aspect within our life, like deep in our souls in one way or the other. For some of us, it's in marriage. And for some of us, we sense it through friendships or workplaces or in this church, people down the rows or the pews or the seats from you. And for many of us then, what we have a tendency to do when we feel this is to begin to live then compartmentalized lives. It's easier just to make things individual and break out our lives into individual aspects and keep them separate from one another. So I want to illustrate for this for you this morning. And uh, so a lot of us in our life, we have this compartment or this kind of location where all, all things and everything spiritual lives. And so this portion of our life, this compartment is a place where we decide on a Sunday morning to come to worship. So give yourselves a hand. Good job. You came. For those of you that are watching online, enjoy your coffee and your couch. Um, but this is the portion where we come and we say, listen, we want a relationship with God. We want to have a spiritual aspect to who we are. This is also the place where we choose the verse that we're going to put on our social media. Can I get an Amen. To make sure people know what we believe. Also, it's the place that we choose to pray before we eat our dinner. When we lay our head down at night, we choose to pray. This is the spiritual part of who we are. And it's a compartment that a lot of us live into. And there's certain things that we put into here. And then a lot of us, we have this other part of our life too. And it's another compartment. And it's the relational compartment. And oftentimes we keep it separate from this compartment. And this compartment, this relational place, this is where we choose how to handle ourselves at the tailgate on the weekend. And this particular place is where we decide how we're going to handle ourselves at the lunch table at school or how we're going to handle ourselves at the water cooler at work. And this is the place where we decide how are we going to treat our spouses, how we treat our children, how do we treat our parents. This relational component of our life, a lot goes into this, but oftentimes we want to make sure that it's separate from this, the spiritual life. 
We've got this, and then we, then we have this if we compartmentalize things. We also have a compartment for our life that is the emotional life. The emotional life. Now, this is the place where maybe you fly off the handle if you can't understand what the person in the drive-thru is saying. Anybody else? Is that just me? This is the place when you cry, when you watch movies like The Notebook, and when you get a perfect meme from your spouse, you can't stop laughing. Like, this is where all of that lives. But this is also the place that we feel deeply, and oftentimes we respond too quickly. This is the place sometimes where we react harshly. This, this emotional component of our life, there's a lot that goes into this as well. And a lot of us, we decide this compartment of our life is gonna be separate from this one. We're gonna keep those, and especially from this one, this spiritual side of who we are, we're gonna keep this separate from the emotional side of who we are. We're gonna compartmentalize things. And then a lot of us too, we have this, this physical component to our life. And in this part of our life, this portion is where we decide what we're gonna do about exercise or sexuality or our pace or our rest. It's the place that we decide how to treat our body by consuming certain food or certain substances. This is the place that we decide what will we do with the body that God has given to us, how will we treat that? And oftentimes this component of our life is separate from the emotional portion of our life or the relational component of our life and certainly it's separate from the spiritual aspect of our life. And what we end up doing is that depending on who we're with or what time of day it is or what we're doing, we'll live into one of these compartments or another. It's just easier. The problem is, when you look at the Gospels and you look at the things that Jesus talks about, you never see Jesus speak to people in terms of these different compartments of their life. You never see him say things like, hey, listen, we're going to talk about your physical life only right now. Let's just focus on that or just your emotional life. No, no. When Jesus speaks to people within the scriptures, we find out that there's another way to look at this, and he calls it the sacred life. And the way Jesus sees who we are all aspects, as complex beings, as bewildering people, Jesus sees it like this, that our spiritual life has something to do with our relational life. And our relational spiritual life has something to do with our emotional life and also our physical life. And all of them live together as something that is sacred. And so Jesus sees all these things working together in tandem with one another. Now, a lot of us, we like to keep them separate from each other, but Jesus considers all of life sacred. All of it is part of what it means to live in relationship to the divine. This means that you cannot divorce individual pieces of this from one another, your emotional life from your physical life and your spiritual life from your emotional life. So how you practice your spiritual walk is sacred. How you relate to one another is sacred. How you handle emotions is sacred. How you handle your physical body is sacred. And here's the problem. When we compartmentalize like this, when we live a fractured life, we forfeit the wholeness that God wants for us. We miss out on holy living. And so last week, Pastor Jeff did a great job of reminding us that there's an aspect to us as spiritual beings where we are more than meets the eye. That there's more just beyond flesh and blood. That we are spiritual beings in profound need of being born again into the family of God. Like sin has done a number on us and yet the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers us new life. And we respond to the grace and mercy of Jesus, we begin this step into becoming whole and experiencing health. So today, I wanna look at another aspect of this, which is the fact that we are relational beings. All of us desire to love and to be loved. All of us desire to feel like we belong somehow or another. The closest way I can think about this was back in like sixth grade. So if you're anywhere in like the 40th 
age range or so, go back to sixth grade for a moment. At the end of the year, there was an exciting time, an exciting thing that happened, and that's when the yearbooks came out. Remember, remember this? No, just me? Cool, it's kind of a big deal in my school. So when I was a kid, in sixth grade, when the yearbook came out, it was perfect timing because I could finally decide, does the person that I've had my eye on all throughout the year, does she feel the same? So I'd take that yearbook and make sure I find her like, hey, would you like to sign my yearbook? If she said no, it was over. I had to start all over next year. But if she's like, oh yeah, then perfect. The book goes to her. And I would go to my friends and they would write all kinds of really, really fun stuff. Remember this? You would find out your friend, hey, write something in my yearbook. You'd say things like, you know, I'm the clown that came to town to sign your yearbook. Upside down, all five of you. You know what to my school too? Where they write things like hags, remember this? Have a great summer. Come on, be, don't be shy about this. This is cool. Like we were so cool in sixth grade. But I remember when I would have my yearbook, the front pages and the back pages all written in, and so I, would, I would pour over that thing for like months to come and look at all the things that people had said to me or about me because there was something inside of me that wanted to feel like I was connected to people, wanted to feel like I belonged in some kind of way and was loved in some kind of way. I mean, truth is, Facebook is the modern day yearbook. You can't get around it. There are people that spend hours a day on Facebook. What they're really looking for is belonging. What they're really looking for is significance, love. It doesn't take long for the scriptures to really speak to this innate desire that all of us have. It speaks to it actually in the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis. The Bible tells us that God created everything in the universe. He spoke it all into being. And there's this cadence to the creation story. There's this first day and second day, light and dark, ground and seas. And you have moon, sun, stars, birds, sea creatures. And then on the sixth day, as God creates, he makes the pinnacle of his creation. And he forms humankind from the dust of the earth. And the Bible says, instead of speaking it into being, he breathes life into it. In every day of the creation story, each day as God creates, what does he say at the end of each one? He says, it is good. It is good. It is good. A little side note. Some of us in the room, we begin reading the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. I don't know if you know it, but the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything good. That's the original intention. That's what God wanted for everything. And so he makes all things. He says, everything is good. It is good. And he creates humankind. He says, it is very good. But there's only one thing in the whole creation story where God says, it is not good. And it's found in Genesis chapter 2, the second telling of God's creation story. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, here's what the Bible says. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It is good, it is good, it is, but it is not good that man would be alone. I'll make a companion for him. You see, after placing man in the Garden of Eden with all of its beauty, all of the splendor of creation, perfect relationship with the creator, and yet God's conclusion is that it's not good that man would be alone. Now, for many people, when they read this scripture, they only think about it in terms of marriage, between a husband and a wife. This is the only way that it's seen. But I would argue it's simply revealing the fact that you and I, all of us, we were created for relationship. God made us with relationship in mind. We were made for partnership. We were designed for companionship. We were never meant to live this life alone. And according to God, there are benefits of us living in relationship with one another that, that cannot be received in any other means, even by living in perfect relationship to creation and alone with a perfect creator. There's things that must be received through relationship. 
A sobering piece of history took place in the 13th century. There was a king by the name of Frederick II. He was a king of Sicily, and he wanted to know the natural language of all human beings. So he decided to set up an experiment to answer this question. And as a result, he took five babies and he forbade their caretakers to speak to them or to communicate to them or to coddle them in any way, but only take care of them to keep them alive. And due to the absence of social interaction with these infants, his idea was that he would be able to determine eventually the language is what he called Adam and Eve. What's the original language of human beings? And after three years, the results were disastrous all five of the children had passed away. Not because their human needs, their physical needs had not been yet, but because their relational needs had been neglected. The need for human connection is so great for every single one of us, particularly during the years of development, that one cannot survive without it. It's that important. You see, I've come across people in my life, people at this church and people as I grew up who would say things to me like, listen, I don't need anybody else. I can do life by myself. I'll I'll make it on my own. And the problem is, you can only do that for so long. That can't last forever. And there's more light shined on this. Actually, in the chapter before, in chapter one, God speaks even more about this created wiring that we have within us. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, as a part of the creation story, here's what God says. It says this in uh, chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, as a part of his creation, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness. Now, when I first read this, I was like, who is God talking about? He's the only thing that exists right now. So who's he talking about? He says, let's make mankind, humankind in our own image. Essentially what God is doing, he's like, let's make them in the image of me, myself, and I. You see, within the scriptures, there's a doctrinal and theological understanding the church has gained over time. It's never, this word is never found within the Bible, but there's this word called Trinity, And it is indeed mystery, but it's spoken to over and over in the scriptures that God has existed for eternity past and will exist into eternity future in an ever-giving, ever-receiving, perfect relationship with himself. God exists both as one and yet somehow three. It is a divine mystery. So God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when God says, let us make mankind, humankind in our image, this is what he's talking about. God's image is Trinitarian in nature. And that is the image that you and I were created to emulate. The kind of relationship that God the Father has with the Son and with the Holy Spirit and vice versa. I mean, to me, it's no wonder why social media has become such a juggernaut. Because we crave this kind of connection, even if it means settling for a counterfeit version. I mean, it's wired into us. So sometimes we mistake loneliness for weakness. But loneliness is not weakness. It's a reminder that God has made you to thrive best when you're placed in a place where you belong and with people who belong to you. And don't feel guilty when that relational tension doesn't sit well with you. It was never part of the original design. That was not God's intention. We were made to be in perfect relationship with God perfect relationship with ourselves and perfect relationship with others. And all of this is found in Genesis chapter one and chapter two. But if you've read the Bible ever before, you know that by the time you get to Genesis chapter three, y'all are probably there actually, January, what, what time? So you're probably about there. Genesis chapter three, something happens and it changes everything. You see, 
God's creation, Adam and Eve, they disobey God and they eat from the one tree they were forbidden to eat from. I mean, can you imagine God creating everything and saying, all of it is yours. You can enjoy everything. Imagine going to Disney World and someone saying, you can go everywhere, but this one park bench you are not to sit on. And Adam and Eve are like, that's exactly where we want to sit. That's exactly what we want to eat. And they make the decision to disobey God and walk away from relationship with him. And in so doing, it changes everything. It fractures everything. There's no longer trust that God has their best interest in mind. They believe they could do it better themselves. They decide to live their life apart from him. Some of the most heartbreaking verses in all the scriptures are written in Genesis chapter three. As God comes back into the garden to come and visit and walk with them once again. And in so doing, he finds that they are hiding from him because of shame and guilt because of what they've done. It's heartbreaking. And I would argue that we have been hiding ever since. You see, sin broke our relationship to God. It broke our relationship to self. And it broke our relationship to others. And from that moment on within the scriptures, every chapter, every verse of the Bible, I would argue, describes the far-reaching effects of choosing to live our lives apart from God. Because whenever we do, then our relationship with him suffers. And in so doing, our relationships with others suffer. Because we lose sight of God's worth and value that he has on us. And we're searching for it then in all kinds of other means where it cannot be found. And when this takes place, we no longer give and receive to one another the way the Trinity demonstrates for us. But instead we harm one another by withholding and also by taking from each other. And if we're really honest this morning, I think that we could all admit that some of us live in situations like this right now. I just want you to know that's not holy living. That's not holy living. Just a few weeks ago, um, one of my sons and I got in an argument before breakfast um, on the way to school. Anybody else in the room do this kind of like little ritual? So for whatever reason, we were running late that morning. You know, the breakfast wasn't perfect. There were all these things. And so there was frustration. And I'm a wonderful father. And so I said things that I should not have said. And so we leave, we go out to the truck and we're driving to school. And it's one of those situations where like no one speaks to each other. And it's like sports talk radio the whole way there. And that's it. And so I drop him off to school and he closes the door and there's no real acknowledgement on the way out the door or anything like that. I don't know about you, but as a parent, those are some of the longest days I've ever experienced because it just sits with you. That relational tension and dysfunction and you're like, I can't wait for him to get home so hopefully we can finally be able to speak to each other and kind of make things right. A couple years ago, I sat down for lunch with a a guy from the church and we were meeting to talk about some tension within uh, the marriage that he was in. And we had kind of scheduled in like an hour together for lunch and, and three hours later, we finally left each other because it took that long to, between tears and crying, to get the pain out to really even be able to talk and begin to process some of this stuff. Uh, recent Christmas, I got an email right before Christmas time from a, a family here at the church who said that they had not spoken to their son in six years. And their plan was to invite him to come and join them for Christmas and they were concerned and wanted us to pray about how this might be received. I mean, these three examples are just small examples that across this room, probably all of us feel some sort of effects of this sin. These are just simple examples of the plethora of relational pains and dysfunctions and difficulties that, that we all experience. 
So I wanna invite you just for, just for five seconds, just to, to close your eyes and just for a moment, just ask the Lord to bring to mind what is one relational ache that is evident to you right now? Just close your eyes for five seconds. Just allow the Lord to, to poke and prod and say, this is the place, this is the ache right here. I want you to hear me. Just so you know, this is not what God intends for you. Just so you know, God's heart is broken over this. And just so you know, it doesn't have to be this way or continue at least in the pain that exists currently. God can heal this. God wants you to experience holy living. And it's possible when it comes to relationships. So Jesus' arrival was at its core about reversing all the effects of sin, the far-reaching effects from sin in Genesis chapter three. His ministry throughout his 33 years on earth was dedicated to making right all that had gone wrong. And so in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is approached with a really interesting question. And you may know this passage, but a man comes to him inquiring about what is the greatest commandment. Of all the things that are written within the scriptures, this man asks, which one is the most important? If I'm gonna do one thing, what should I do? And this is actually a common debate within Jewish culture, within the ancient Near East. The rabbis, they would debate this kind of question because the answer to this question, the greatest commandment, they believed would unlock fullness and wholeness of life. And so they would wanna know the answer. So he comes to Jesus and he says, what is the one commandment? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer, I believe, is key to this holy living that's available to us. In Matthew chapter 22, 37 through 40, 39, here's how Jesus responds. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he's quoting Old Testament scripture here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But right on the tails of it, he adds this. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the man says, Jesus, what's the most important thing I could do? And the Jewish people, they had many commandments. There's 10 of them you've probably heard of in the Old Testament, the big 10. But in addition to that, they had written 613 others. So Jesus had 623 different commandments or laws that he could answer as far as which one is the most important. It's interesting to me then, the one he chooses is one that deals with relational wholeness and connection. Notice the connections made within this answer. He says, first, you must love God with your heart, soul, and mind. Notice something here. The answer that Jesus gives is taking everything that was shattered in Genesis 3 and beginning to put it back together. Sin broke our relationship to God, to others, to self. And so Jesus says, here's what you must do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is Jesus' way of first and foremost saying, you must love God with everything that you have. All of it. You must love God. It's where everything begins. Being whole relationally is about healing our connection to God, healing our connection to ourselves, healing our connection to others. If you wanna live a holy life, we must first ask ourselves, do I really love God? Do I really love him with all that I have? Is there any evidence in my life that God is first in my life? That I love him more than anything? Then you must say, then I can love my neighbor as I love myself. 
Now, Jesus is making a really big assumption here in Matthew 22. The assumption he's making is that we actually love ourselves. I'll be honest with you. If some of you in the room were to love me the way that you love yourself, I wouldn't appreciate it very much. Because some of us, in the end, don't actually love ourselves. And I want to be clear what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about pride. I'm not talking about ego. I'm talking about having a healthy understanding, a proper posture based upon the kind of value and worth that God places on you. I mean, he created you. He loves you. And for so many of us, we tell God, you're wrong. I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of value. And God would say, yes, you are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you can love your neighbor as you love yourself. One of my greatest joys at the church is being able to do premarital counseling with folks that are about to get married. And so I love spending time with folks walking through different stuff and preparation for the big day. And there's something that I say to them at the very beginning of our time together every single time. I will say we're not gonna spend a lot of time like going through scriptures necessarily during our time together. But everything that we're gonna talk about is couched in this one story in Matthew 22. Because unless you love God first with your whole heart, there's no hope for you to be able to love each other well. And unless you love God with your whole heart and you actually love yourself, what you will find yourself doing is always looking for something from your spouse that they cannot provide for you. I mean, just that is a word for us this morning. I would argue that a lot of the dysfunction and difficulty that we experience within relationships has very little to do with the issue at hand. I must be honest, like like not taking the trash out, that's not something that's gonna crumble relationships. But it feels like it, doesn't it? Like when someone doesn't show up on time to the lunch that you guys had scheduled, like is that really worth crumbling the friendship over? But here's the problem. There's so much more going on behind the issues at hand. And I would argue it has a lot to do with this. If I don't find my worth and value in Christ alone, if I don't love God first and foremost with my whole heart, then my spouse, my friendships, my children, the folks in my church, they will never be able to provide for me the things that I'm looking for. And it will cause tension every single time. And it's out of this place that we often harm one another. So we say things that hurt each other. We do things out of frustration. And it can only be solved through a restored relationship with God first. Too many of us, we make excuses for all the sinful ways that we handle one another. But make no mistake, no one sins in a vacuum. Everything that we do that is sinful affects someone around us, whether we like it or not. And we cannot willingly create chaos in our connections to God, self, and others, and expect to experience peace and wholeness in our own lives. They cannot live together. So there's only one way, technically two, I guess, for us to live out in obedience the greatest commandment that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 22. Forgiveness and repentance. Forgiveness and repentance are the two feet of relational wholeness. Forgiveness and repentance are the keys to relational wholeness. So I would love to say that living with relational wholeness is a really complex issue that requires a litany of processes and procedures and there's nothing that any of us should have to do because it's too difficult, but the problem is it's actually pretty simple. To be clear, it is simple. I didn't say it was easy. Those are two different things. It is simple, but it's not easy to live in relational wholeness. To be clear, 
they are two steps uh, toward the same end, forgiveness and repentance. First, we must choose repentance. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means to change one's mind or to change one's direction. Some of us in the room this morning need to, based upon a love of God and a love of self and a love of others, with the help of the Holy Spirit, change our minds and direction in our relationships with someone else. To repent. It's not just to feel remorse or feeling sorry because we got caught or because things didn't work out, but that just leads to guilt and shame. I believe that real repentance is actually a movement and an action towards reconciliation. And so I want to spell it out for us this morning because oftentimes if I have to repent about something, I will find all the reasons why I shouldn't have to. So I want to make it very, very clear. If you have done something that has harmed someone else, there might be a time now to repent. If you have said something that has harmed someone else, there might be a need to repent. And if this morning we're waiting for someone else to repent first, then perhaps it's time to repent. Maybe we need to respond, to change our mind, to change our direction, and to restore relational wholeness. The true test of relational wholeness and repentance is not seen in the weeks ahead, it's seen in the years ahead. That's what determines whether we truly repented. I read recently about a really small village, town in, in Labrador, Canada, and there's this little small town that is completely isolated, has been for years isolated from the rest of, of people. And recently, a road had been cut through the wilderness to reach it. Now, this road was nothing like we have here in Lexington, full of cars or anything. This road um, was a six to eight hour journey all the way into this village. There's no other way in to visit these people who live here. So when you get to this place, there's only one way out, and you have to turn around. If you're gonna make it to this village and you're gonna go back the other direction, there's only one way out, and it's the way that you came in. I would argue that each of us have arrived in a town called Sin in one way or another, all of us, and there's only one way out. And it's a road that's been built by God himself, but in order to take that road, we must first turn around. This complete 180 is what the Bible calls repentance, and without it, there's no way out of town. Now, for some of us, when we hear this, this idea of repentance, like, that sounds awful. That's the last thing that I want to do. I don't want to admit wrong. I don't want to lose. I don't want to do any of this kind of stuff. And it, and it sounds horrible. But don't you find it also so full of grace and mercy that God has given us a way out? Like, God has offered us a way to relational connectedness again. Whether we're willing to do it or want to do it or not is one thing. But the fact that it exists, that is a blessing. The repentance is something that we can choose to do. It's the first step. The second step is forgiveness. And they live with one another. Left foot, right foot, repentance, forgiveness, repentance, forgiveness. When we choose forgiveness, I know it's easier said than done. And it is. It, it even feels kind of silly to talk about it from the stage, not knowing everything that's going on in the room. But I believe this one spiritual practice may be the most difficult that we ever do within our life. There are some Christians who I know who have convinced themselves they can compartmentalize their life in so many ways that they are convinced that they can experience wholeness of living without the hard work of forgiveness. The Greek word for forgiveness literally means to let go or release 
So to be clear, there are a myriad of sinful actions and painful things that have been done to individuals in this room. There are things that many of us carry around, maybe even to this day. It may have happened 20, 30 years ago. And I want to be clear, things can never be excused. That's not what I'm inviting you into. I don't believe that's what Christ invites us into. It's not an excuse. But forgiveness is not about overlooking what has been done. It's, it's about allowing what was wrong, or not allowing what was wrong to keep us from doing what is right. Max Licato says it this way, forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free and realizing that someone is actually you. For many of us, as we carry around this lack of forgiveness, we become so bitter, so jaded. We refuse to forgive. And the saddest part is, though we think we're inflicting pain on the other person because of what they've done to us, the truth is we're only harming ourselves. That's why forgiveness is so important. This is not a commentary on how long it should take for this to happen. This is a word, though, that it must. I realize that many things that we could talk about and bring up here in the room may require counseling, therapy, distance, but that does not negate the fact that forgiveness is a possibility for us. It's repentance and forgiveness, left foot, right foot. This is how we arrive in a place where there is relational wholeness. Christian writer and speaker, the late Corey Tenboom, told of not being able to forget a wrong that had been done to her within her life. She had forgiven the person, but she kept rehashing the incident so that she couldn't even sleep. And so finally, Corey cried out to God for help in putting the problem to rest. And his help came, she writes, in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom she confessed her struggle of having two sleepless weeks over what had gone on. And the man responded, up in the church tower, he said, nodding out the window, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the final tug of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding and then dong and slower and slower until there's finally a ding and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hands off the rope. But if we've been tugging at the grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the dinging and the dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be true, Corey said. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in a conversation, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, she said, had gone out of them. They came less and less often, and at last stopped all together. I wonder how many of us this morning, we just need to stop pulling on the rope to allow the forgiveness to actually take hold within our hearts, to be able to move forward into this new wholeness that God wants for us, to recognize there are things that have happened in the past that we can't change. But what we can do is through, through patience and trust and faith, walk forward with God into whatever the world looks like next. And so this morning, I, I wanna give us a, a chance to be able to respond to this. And I wanna be clear, um, this is simple, but it is by no means easy. As we sing this closing song, I just wanna invite you, if there's someone in this room, that even now, like you avoid eye contact when you walk through the church, you don't have conversation. If there's someone that you feel like God is saying, you need to respond somehow to restore things, feel free to do it this morning. If you're a husband and a wife who are sitting in these chairs right now, and the whole time I'm talking, like, 
we have got to get out of here. Like, this is too uncomfortable. Let's go to Moe's and just talk about something else. I want to invite you this morning, if it's helpful for you, to come to the front of this stage and spend time in prayer, to repent, to forgive. Maybe today as you leave church, there's a text that needs to be sent, an email that needs to be sent, a phone call that needs to be made, a coffee date that needs to be set up in order to experience what I believe is something that is available to us, relational wholeness. And so as we sing here, I wanna pray for us and I don't want you to feel pressured to have to do anything. That's not what this is about. I, I think that God, I think God wants to be gentle with us because this is painful. But I do think that God knows there's only one way back out of town. And so if the Lord speaks to you today, I encourage you to respond in whatever way is appropriate to your situation. Let's pray together. God, I'm not so arrogant to believe that I know everything that is going on in this room today, everything that's going on in, in the living rooms of folks that are watching right now. That's not my intent at all. But in some ways, God, I can't, Apologize for the fact that you have given us a road to relational wholeness. And as difficult as it may be, it is simple. It's repentance and forgiveness. So awaken our hearts today, God, for the ways and the things that we need to repent from. Not things that we don't need to, but things that are indeed find their origin in us. And I pray, God, you would awaken in our hearts the individuals whether we say it to their face or we only say it in our hearts, that we would forgive so that we could free ourselves to live into the next chapter of our lives. So God, we love you today. Help us to see clearly that we cannot compartmentalize, compartmentalize our lives, but instead they are all sacred, all parts. Help us to live as if that is true. So God, we love you today. We need you today. It's in your name that we pray, and together everyone said.